Greetings, podcast listeners, and welcome to this episode of the Colorado Review Podcast, in partnership with the Center for Literary Publishing at Colorado State University. This is your host, C. Colbertson, and today I sit down with Leonora Simonovis, whose book, Study of the Raft, won the Colorado Prize for Poetry in 2021. We talk about writing from multilingual backgrounds, the worlds we construct from childhood, memory, and place, as well as modes of writing poetry, and what it means to write poetry today. Welcome. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. Yeah, thank you too. Um, So I wanted to begin by inviting you to read a poem for us. So I'm going to read at the airport. The young woman stands like an unmoored sentence, red-rimmed eyes roaming the crowds. Next to her, a young man, her boyfriend and her mother. He lifts his hand as if wanting to touch the parts of her he wants to remember, but the woman has already turned the page. Sometimes the only way out is to step into the fable of another existence. Every few minutes, a flash of military green, raised voices, another passenger detained and hassled for a few dollars. Things to remember. You are a one-way ticket. Say goodbye, not hasta luego. To leave is to tune into your own unraveling, to understand that forever is also never. The woman holds her loved ones, stands up, wobbles, straightens. Call us when you get to the gate, the mother says. Thank you. Thank you. uh, I'm so struck by the lines, sometimes the only way out is to step into the fable of another existence. Mm -hmm. And it, it makes me think about the way that poetry sort of constructs a world. Mm-hmm. I think. So as to get into your book, I'm interested in how the poetry collection generally, again, constitutes a world, mm-hmm. an account of how language functions and what poetry can do. I think when we're writing the language we tr- choose, the form, the way the poem lays on the page, it constructs a certain way of speaking and a way of seeing. Mm-hmm. There's so many poems, particularly in the beginning of your collection, that are interested in world building. With this in mind, what sort of account of the world does study of the raft enact? That's a great question. I want to say a world where beauty can be found in spite of destruction and in spite of the ugliness of it. It is a world where loss is prevalent the loss of language, the loss of stories, the loss of family, um, where grief is pretty much at the tip of the tongue all the time in everything you say and do. But when I wrote the book, I was seeking for something on the other side, having been through um, the whole process of being an immigrant and and what that means in this country, which is different for everyone. But for me, it was a process of accepting and adjusting, not assimilating, but sort of rebuilding myself as well. So um, it was also a process of 
of accepting that world that I had to recreate for myself in order to feel comfortable here. And it's taken, I mean, I've been in this country for this time for almost 15 years. I lived here as a child, um, but it's taken me all this time to really process what it means to be an immigrant mm -hmm. and what it means to be me today, now. Yeah. Yeah, and, and you know, what we call me or us mm -hmm. is so guided or, I don't know, formed by the landscapes that we inhabit, right? Exactly, yeah. And, and one thing that struck me about your book is that it moves through so many different landscapes. Mm -hmm. And it feels so particular to the work, in fact. And especially in the, the early the early poems, I feel I really see childhood um, mm -hmm. for you or for your speaker, um, this sort of tension between family self, and then you take up this tension between self and gender as well, right? public and revolution. Mm -hmm. um, can you talk about the landscape or the backdrop against which your poems speak? Yeah, definitely. And I actually was teaching a class when I started thinking about some of these poems, and it was a theory and methods class, but one of the readings we did was um, on maps and how maps are constructed and who gets to decide what goes on the map, the sizing of the countries and the land masses and the, everything else. And so um, I started thinking about how internal and external landscapes are related and connected. Land is very important for me my, um, the women in my family, my mother, um, grandmother, great-grandmother, they all in one way or another had a connection to the land. And one of the things that I was remembering recently is when my mother, when I asked as a child, why don't we go to Disney and why don't we go to Europe or whatever? Um, because it's what everyone was doing. Instead of saying, because we don't have the means for it, because I, you know, it was true. She said, because you have to know your own country first before you get to know other countries. You have to know the land you're from because that's who you are. It's a part of who you are. And so I think I brought that into this book as well. Those external landscapes and what's happening to them in this so-called revolution, red revolution or 21st century revolution, as they, um, as they called it. But what's happening to the land is also happening to us. What's happening to the landscapes, you know, the pollution. I mean, there's so much pollution. Nobody talks about that in the Amazon rainforest. That indigenous people are being persecuted for protesting against this. They're being tortured and killed. And so everything that goes on on the outside is affecting us in the inside as well. Um, and so I wanted to reflect that and to tell my story and to tell it from the perspective of a child, because this is not new. It's been going on for a while. And as a child, how I felt so helpless, how I was listening to all these conversations that the adults were having about the economic crisis and the political upheavals and the social changes and how they were also lost. They didn't know what to do. And all we could do is just keep going, keep living, right? And continue to tell the story. 
um, and to pass them on to, to the future generations. That seems so prescient today as we consider the kind of this mashup of of globalism that seems to be ever changing, yes. <laughs> you know, uh -huh. in, our, in our current sphere. Yeah. Um, can you talk uh, more about language and the way that this sort of um, I don't know, being being multilingual, this tension between indigenous and colonizer languages, mm -hmm. you know, the ways we speak at home versus the way we speak or are mm -hmm. spoken to by the state. Right. You know, can you speak to how language functions in in your work and, and what mm -hmm. kind of of multilingualism you try to portray? Yeah, definitely. That's a that's a great question. Languages have been prevalent in my life since I was very little. We were exposed to all kinds of languages, like European and also indigenous languages um, in the city, in Caracas. There were lots of Italian and Portuguese immigrants and also um, immigrants from Spain, but from like Galicia and the Basque country who speak a completely different, they call it dialect. I like to call it language. It's a language too. And just listening to all of that, I think for me, my, my um, main sense is sound so that soundscape I wanted it to come through as well in in the book because part of it was noise but part of it was just being exposed to all these ways of seeing the world and sort of absorbing everything and in regards to indigenous culture my so-called fairy tales the first ones I read as a kid were from indigenous groups in the Amazon rainforest. Like, again, my mother um, wanted us to get to know who we were as, as a people, right? Who the, the first inhabitants of our land were. And so she, I remember she went to this bookstore and she brought home, like, I still have them. There are like five or six books that had indigenous stories. And um, they're like my favorite ones. I, I, I actually have them, you know, read to my kids and I have them read them and all that. And so that, not the language itself because they were written in Spanish, they were translated, but the, the cosmology, like the worldview that they were showing was completely different to European fairy tales. And so, you know, I grew up like not with these things being opposed to each other, but actually living and dialoguing and conversing in this same world. And so in terms of like the languages that I speak, you know, English and Spanish, they also, they're not in opposition to each other. It's not a binary. They're, you know, sort of like mingling and mixing. And sometimes, you know, one takes over, sometimes the other, but they just live inside of me, both of them. And, um, and in a way, I think I am trying to get away from that way of seeing the world as you know good and evil you know male female you know english spanish or whatever right that binary way of seeing which i think has been very detrimental to culture and social relations in general i i think that there's a way that how study of the raft sort of shows us a way that we can both be critical of language's power mm 
mm-hmm. right? But also use it at the same time. Right. Because it is the way we speak. Right. <laughs> right? Yes. <laughs> right. We can't uh, get away side of it, really. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I think that that speaks to um, really what poetry does. You know, I mean, as poets, we are so ensconced with with language and with ways of speaking and, you know, telling stories and creating worlds looking inside and outside of your work i wonder if you could speak to this what is poetry's capacity to engender to bring about to foment i find that stories like yours really bring me out of my own skin and 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 there's so much to take in and and places to be taken to mm-hmm. yeah thank you that's that's beautiful um I would say literature in general has a way of teaching us about the world in a way that textbooks don't. And that I learned that at a very early age, I love to read. I actually, my, my mother always told me when I was like three or four, I was like, you need to teach me how to read. I don't care. I'm not in school. I want to learn to read. And she taught me and I just grabbed the books and um, I have some of my books that I read as a kid and they're all like, you know, marked with pencil, because I, I wanted to also rewrite those stories in my own way. Um, and so I think that poetry, for me, has a way of, I'm trying to find the word, it has a way of showing us the world more directly, I guess, because even though we are working with language and we are somewhat following rules, we can also break those rules, right? We, we don't have to write syntactically, you know, correct, uh, syntactically correct sentence so that, you know, it makes sense. We rely on images, on metaphor, on figurative language. I mean, all these things that make a poem a poem, right? And it reminds me of Buddhism and the way in which we are always living in this illusion and can't really come close to reality unless we actually sit down and, you know, meditate and reflect and take things for what they are, taking them at face value, right? It's an object. I mean, it's, let's say I'm I'm looking at a horse. I'm not going to start, you know, trying to conceptualize the horse in my head because then it stops being a horse and it begins to be something else, right? Um, I'm constructing it rather than just looking at the horse and seeing it for what it is. It's a horse. I think that it's very simple and complex at the same time. And I think poetry gives us that, you know, um, I've read poems that are, that look very, I don't know, sparse and concrete on the page. And that seem to give a very simple account of something, but then you read them over and over and every time it's different, right? And they, they give you um, so much more than what you were expecting. And I'm thinking about Lucille Clifton, for example, or Jane Kenyon. I mean, just incredible poets who did so much with this like sparseness and simplicity of language. 
I feel like there's there's two directions we could go because I'm I'm hearing I'm hearing um, I'm hearing something about um, the way that the poem lays on the page, but also mm-hmm. hearing um, another dialogue about inheritances and right. what kind of you know you talked earlier about the books that your mother collected and that you mm-hmm. now have and. You know, those count as inheritances, I'm sure, but then also Lucille Clifton Mm -hmm. um, and others. Um, So let's let's go ahead and start with that. So inside or outside of poetry, you know, we're we're always finding ways to get ourselves, you know, onto the page Mm -hmm. um, in our writing desk, whatever form (laughs) that takes (laughs) and uh, and and make marks upon upon it. So what, what is that for you? What, what are your go-tos? What are you, uh, what's your lineage? Wow, that's, that's, a, <laughs> that's a huge one. And I also feel like I can go in so many directions. I have several ways of getting on the page. Reading is one of them. And sometimes it can either be reading a children's book or it could be reading a poetry book or reading fiction a novel or reading for my classes as I prep Um, I can find inspiration in that a lot of times I listen to different podcasts um, not just on poetry or literature but like nature you know wildlife ecology things like that and listening to those sometimes I I am driving and I'm like oh my gosh that line it's amazing I have to write it down or you know I come up with an idea thanks to that you know conversation in the podcast but I think for me writing is kind of an embodied practice I am in my body a lot Um, I used to be a competitive swimmer I did martial arts for a long time and that um, tradition of the martial arts and the connection with another person, not in fighting, but in, in a way like getting in touch with their energy and knowing what it feels like to actually sort of be with that other person's center of gravity. What does it mean, right? Like it's very intimate. And I think all of those practices, um, yoga as well, have led me to prepare by being in my body first before I actually write. And I actually write by hand a lot. And when I feel like I have revised enough, then I type up on the page on the computer. Um, But in general, it has to be something physical. And it could be also like grasping an object and feeling in my hands or going outside and listening to, you know, the birds or the ocean or whatever it is, not because I'm writing about that, but because I need that sensory input in order to be able to, to get on the page in a mindful way. Um, I don't know if that makes sense. Yeah, it makes sense. Mm -hmm. Um, I mean, I myself uh, go out on walks or just Mm -hmm. stand out in my backyard and it's, for me, it's, it's needing that kind of that isolation Mm 
mm-hmm. um, that moment to just feel myself. And right. like, I, I'm, I'm really, I'm really understanding what you're saying. Um, but yeah, just being in your body and somehow that, I don't know, it gets something flowing. Um, mm-hmm. And I, I often think about a line, you know, as, yes. as I'm driving or as I'm, you know, outside yes. and then I'm, I'm, racing to my notebook to try to (laughs) to try to put it down before I forget yeah I'm the same yeah (laughs) and it's great especially like if you're walking outside and you see something and I I don't always take a notebook with me because I'm usually with my dogs and I really don't have you know I have only two hands so I can't stop and write something down um so I record it on the phone or I actually I've done this where I repeat it to myself until I get home (laughs) <laughs> and then I write it yeah. down. It's like a mantra, right? <laughs> you know, so when you when you do get to the um, and this is, I don't know, maybe one of those questions you kind of have to ask everyone when they come into the studio. Mm-hmm. But when you do get to the to your desk or to your notebook or whatever, what is your process? You said that you wrote by hand mm-hmm. are you finding that it's like a sort of an act of composition of transcription um or like how do you how do you kind of get into the mode and and mm-hmm. get the the words on the page so as you're saying that i'm thinking about you know those gummy worms mm-hmm. <laughs> you know like and you open it and you just you know put them in a bowl and it's all this like wriggling messy kind of thing so that's what to me what it looks like on the page usually I start with a line or an idea and I go from there but I always end up somewhere else so I start I'm like oh I'm gonna write about this and I start and then as I keep writing it's not about that it's some something you know related but completely different um and I don't always do um free writing I do a lot of it but sometimes I just give myself a prompt and I do some mindful writing or I call it mindful writing which is something where I'm very aware of what I'm doing and my train of thought it's like a meditation and so I am either reflecting on something or I'm describing, then reflecting, going a little bit with the whole poetic structure. Or, you know, I copy down a phrase that I find ironic and then I try to go off of that and see where that leads me. Or I write like an abecedarian. And so I just grab the dictionary and start, oh, okay, this is, this is cool. I start writing words and going with that. And I like to alternate between the two because free writing I find helpful to an extent, but I don't know if it's maybe because of my own, you know, physical practices in, you know, mindfully walking or doing yoga or meditating that it really does help to do writing in a mindful way, in a more conscious way. And I'm not necessarily talking about like revising or editing, but just like writing on the page and looking at, I guess, as you're writing, you're being present with it. And you're also being present with what's going on in your body and your mind at the, at the same time. Mm. Yeah. Oh, that's, that's beautiful. I like mm. that. Well, now I'm thinking of form. 
and mm. um, <laughs> <laughs> and I notice in in study of the raft, there's a few different ways that the poems appear. You know, particularly maps, which mm -hmm. is the first poem, is uh, fielded out a little bit. Use of white space, mm -hmm. and it's kind of uh, striated across the page. And then there's other poems like Still Life with Smoked Landscape, mm -hmm. which is divided into tight couplets and stays in the right-hand margin. Right. Um, and then there's poems like Legends, which sort of has a, um, I don't know what you would call it, but um, a subtitle of sorts. Mm -hmm. um, and then a, uh, a tercet that follows. What are these different ways of of putting the poem on the page do? Um, mm. Like what, how is form working for you and how are you conceiving of it? Yeah, so when I was writing, especially maps and legends, I wanted the form to reflect the content in some way. And so, you know, maps has that sort of blank space and across the page kind of structure because I was thinking about a literal map and what that looks like on the page, but also those blank pages, because it is about colonization, repre represent what has been lost, right? And what cannot be recovered. And so, you know, towards the end of the poem, I was trying to, as I kind of, you know, make this stanzas a little bit more compact, trying to create a new story from that loss, right? And, and sort of what can we gain from it? Do we gain anything from it? I kept, my, I kept asking those questions to myself. Like, what do we have now um, after that loss? And, and what can we recover? And if we do, how can we um, archive it or pass it on to the future generations? And so I was, I was trying to do that with maps. And then legends actually, had a completely different structure. It was, as I'm trying to remember, but I think it was all tercets and it didn't have um, the, what I call the definitions or the words next to them. But my partner said, well, it's called legends. There's, you know, every map has legends. So why don't you think about that and do something with that? And I was like, oh yes. And that's when it became what it is now. But I also wanted that there to be some continuity, which is why all those words are connected to each other. And I was thinking about layers in history, the layering in history, but also um, how that reflects in the landscape. And so um, according to the history of Caracas, the city of Caracas, the mountain that surrounds the valley of the city used to be part of the ocean or used to be underwater, right? And then at some point it just, you know, as you know, the ocean started to recede and everything started to dry, it just became the landmass that is now around the city. And I was thinking about that and how indigenous people knew about all these stories, but they don't appear in history books. And so, you know, how the word legend can play to both things like the legend in a map, but also the legends that we hear that are not part of official history. 
but that become stories that are orally transmitted. And so I was trying to play in, in most of the poems with the relationship between form and content. And I also played with some, you know, traditional forms like sonnets and pantoums, but then they served as a starting point for what the poems became, eventually became. I want to ask, um, as we're kind of getting toward the end here, what are you reading right now? <laughs> or <laughs> or um, what should our readers be reading? Oh, let's see. Well, I'm reading right now The Art of Syntax by Ellen Brian Boyd. Um, and it's a book I've been wanting to read for a while because I do teach grammar in Spanish. And I find that doing that has inspired my writing, ironically. I used to not like teaching grammar. And um, I'm thankful to my students because it's through their questions that I started seeing it in a different way. And, um, and so I'm reading that and I'm reading um, Carl Phillips' Coin of the Realm, which are essays on poetry and I love it. As far as poetry, I've been rereading Bishop, um, mostly because I'm revising some poems and um, like at least three people were like, you know what? <laughs> you should probably read, remember this poem by Bishop? And I'm thinking, okay, so that's three out of three. So I should probably <laughs> go back and read it. So I'm rereading all of her um, selected poems. As far as shoulds, um, I don't usually do shoulds, but I do <laughs> recommend, I always recommend reading Clifton, like anything and everything by Clifton. Russ Gay is another author that I absolutely love and I could reread his work over and over. I was thinking about Jane Kenyon recently too, because um, she's one of the poets that I find I can relate to in terms of the way she writes. And I don't think a lot of people read her much. And Gosh, I like so many poets, you know, Dennis Smith and Paige Lewis, um, Kave Akbar. I mean, I could make a list and it would go pages and pages long, but I've also been reading um, recently published poets that are either friends or um, that I met somehow in a workshop and, um, my friend um, Jer Jerry Fredrickson um, published a book called You Are Not Lost, which is beautiful. Amanda Moore published uh, Requeening Poetry Collection. And I'm sure there's more, but I right now I'm <laughs> blanking on. <laughs> Thank you. That's yeah. that's um, that's a that's a, a good list to to go and, and discover some more of what's out there. So. But you said how you were uh, uh, revising some poems. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Are you working on something new? Is there something in process? Um, there is. I just don't know what it is yet. Um, but these are poems that I wrote last spring um, as I was sort of waiting to hear back from all the submissions I had done on the book. 
And also my, my mother was very ill at the time. And so I was trying to find a way to sort of keep my mind occupied. And, and so a lot of these poems are landscape related. I watched several documentaries on like ice, Greenland, um, the, the polar ice caps melting. There's a lot of doom, but there's also so many interesting things. Um, and a lot of memories from childhood start coming up about places that we visited and that today are uh, sort of endangered. And so I'm thinking about climate change and how it's affecting not only you know, the United States, because we talk about that a lot here, but how is it affecting other places in the world and um, indigenous communities, the indigenous communities that I, you know, grew up with and um, the places that, you know, that had snow, for example, that I visited as a, as a child in Venezuela and how the snow is basically disappearing now. And I can't really imagine that, you know, I, I've looked at the pictures, but it's hard for me to picture it because what does that mean as that landscape sort of recedes or disappears or transforms, how does my experience transform as well? And mm. my own story, my own connection to it. And so I've been thinking a lot about that. Um, so the poems that I'm revising have a lot to do with it but I'm not sure exactly, you know, I don't have like a, a project in mind at the moment. Maybe I do. And it's like subconsciously pulling me in that direction. But Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'll, I'll definitely um, be uh, checking out your author's page and, and hopefully seeing some of these out in the world. Yeah. Um, that's so interesting though. And, and I don't know if this is a question exactly, but when writing about climate change and, and the way that you were speaking to it, mm -hmm. I, I wonder if, if, there's a, if there's a way that that sort of poetics is speculative. Mm, yes. Yeah. Definitely. I don't know if you could speak to that. Um, so I actually took a, a, a poetry, a speculative poetry workshop years ago um, with Winter Tangerine. And um, the exercises were amazing because they really had me going out of my comfort zone to write about things that I would never think about. It was a lot of, you know, like imagining things that were completely surreal and beyond, you know, what you see every day. And so I've been pulling out some of those prompts. I still have them and rereading them and thinking how how can I apply this to what I'm interested in now and the speculation part is so hard for me because I I don't and I think this is the um academic <laughs> in me the scholar you know it's like maybe I don't want to say this but um that's that's something that I still struggle with you know like working in academia and teaching and, and teaching students how to write critically and how to cite and properly provide evidence and all this stuff. And then on the other hand, I'm, and, you know, making up as I go in my own work. Um, and so I think that um, I want to explore that 
speculative side more. Um, but I also need to read more. And so, yeah, I'm starting to kind of look into that as well. Cool. Yeah. <laughs> awesome. Yeah. Um, so as we started uh, this conversation with the poem, I wondered if you would read a, uh, another poem to close. Yeah, definitely. Um, so I will read Katsarida Phobia, um, which is fear of cockroaches. It wasn't so much the smell of rancid oil, but how they start the ceiling, many-legged nightmares falling on our beds. If I paid attention, I could see their constellations shifting. I call them Azabache, Canela, Luna, Lucero, like the horses we rode at the farm, tame, familiar. Mama scolded me for not killing them, but the sound of death is not meant for every ear. How many times did I panic when wings smacked my body? when legs skittered on an arm or leg. The only time I stepped on a roach, the scene repeated in my head like a horror film. I kept looking at the corpse, unnerved by postmortem spasms. It's easier to run, brush the fear away, but maybe I should have asked them, what is my name? Thank you for listening. That was this month's episode. Next episode, editorial assistant Sarah Hughes sits down with Cynthia Parker O'Henne, whose book Daughters of Harriet was recently selected for the Colorado Review's Mountain West Poetry Series.